You are listening to the Aging Starts Now podcast, where it's all about responding with confidence to the legal, financial, and personal challenges created by disability, unexpected illness, or simply aging in general. Join us weekly as elder law attorneys Tim Takis, Barbara McGinnis, Chris Johnson, and other members of the Takis McGinnis Elder Care Law Team talk about the tools, techniques, strategies, and services that will make the elder care journey easier for everyone involved. Get ready, because aging starts now. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode number six of Aging Starts Now. I'm your host, Barbara McGinnis. And today we're talking about end-of-life wishes. Joining us today is Deborah King, one of our elder care coordinators in the LCSW. Hey, Deb, we were recently at a conference together in California, and one of the topics that we heard was a really, uh, was a bioethicist talking about end-of-life wishes. And her lead question was, do you want your feet tucked or not? So um, I'm an untucked person. I like my foot up above the cover, so... You need to know that about me. Okay. I agree. I don't want them tucked in. And part of her point was that end-of-life wishes are more than just put me on a machine or don't put me on a machine. Do I want a feeding tube or do I not want a feeding tube? And we recognize this a lot. I talk to a lot of my clients about planning for not just what happens after they die, but what happens before then? What if they become disabled? How does that affect the decisions that they're going to make? So it's not just about actually how do I die, but how do I live during the last part of my life? What are the things that are really important to me that represent quality? Because we do talk about quality of life a lot. But what does that mean? And it's a very individualized thing. Absolutely. And that's where the feet tucked in or the feet not tucked in. Do I want Coke or Diet Coke? Do I want to be by the window or do I want to make sure I get my TV? A lot of things affect our quality of life. And it's important not only to know what your wishes are, but to share those with important decision makers as well. So... How do you go about making sure, one, how do you pick your important decision maker? That is a good question. Um, It does not have to be the eldest child or the eldest son. Um, You want to pick someone that understands what your wishes are and will be able to carry them out because oftentimes those wishes come up during very critical crisis times. And you're talking about someone being able to let you go or keep you going. And and as somebody that's a good advocate, so to be a good advocate, you have to be local. I mean, somewhat local. You have to be available, right? Right, right. Um, And and some of that does, has a proximity to it. But just being available, being willing to advocate and speak up, And that doesn't mean they can't include others in the conversation. Oh, absolutely. But someone has to be able to make that final decision and be the spokesperson for you if you are not able to speak for yourself. But sometimes that's a spouse or a child, but sometimes that might be your best friend or your sister, or it could be anybody that's close and loves you, really. Absolutely. Okay, so after you've picked your advocate, how do you go about making sure they know what you want? Well, first, you have to know what you want, and there's a lot of resources out there. We provide a a booklet called Do You Know My Wishes 
that kind of goes through some of the scenarios and some of the issues related to care decisions, not just the end of life, but care decisions. Where mm -hmm. do I want to be cared for? How do I want to be cared for? Um, and then there are other online resources, uh, talking with your family. And that's often a difficult thing is how do you bring up that conversation? How do you start that conversation? Right. So we talked, we mentioned some quality of life things, just simple day to day, what, what's important to you. Then there's this next level of decisions or topics you need to think about. What would be worse than dying? What are the things that would you would, could possibly have to live with that would be worse than dying? Is it living in a wheelchair? For some people, yes. For some people, no. Is it living with a tube feeding? Is it, you know, taking that risk of aspiration? But Right. One of the clients I recently spoke with says, being outdoors and being able to see outdoors is real important to her. She wants to be somewhere where she can go outside, even if it's being pushed in a wheelchair, and being able to look out the window and see the sunshine and see the greenery and the flowers is real important to her. Her husband, not so much. Yeah, as long as he has a television and a remote in his hand, right? Right, right. Um, some other thoughts uh, or topics to consider would be the burden of dialysis. Maybe you're completely ambulatory. Wheelchair's not in the question. You still eat. Two things not in the question. So, but dialysis. Dialysis is one big, big question. One. Um, it used to be if you were over 65, you didn't even qualify for dialysis. And now they're putting 80-year-olds on dialysis. But it limits your life and your quality of life. You're spending four hours a day in a chair or eight hours at night um, being tied up to fluids for peritoneal dialysis. So it is restrictive, plus it affects how you feel. You might feel good after the treatment, but as you need get closer to the next treatment, you don't feel quite as good. So that's a quality of life decision. Also, how will you tolerate that if you overlay an issue like a dementia or a Parkinson's or even a chronic arthritis that causes you pain to sit for a long period of time? How is that going to, how does that affect your decision to do dialysis? Chemotherapy is another one. Right. If you get a cancer later in life, what is important to you? How, how long is that chemotherapy going to extend your life? And what kind of quality are you going to have during that period? Is that something that you're willing to risk? I think one of the um, barriers to making good decisions is the lack of information that medical providers give you. They talk to you a lot about what's the rate of success, what's your likelihood of surviving. You know if you need dialysis and you don't have dialysis, you're going to die. But they don't necessarily talk to you about what it's like to live with dialysis. And that's just one example. Same thing with chemotherapy or radiation. CPR. Or, or 2P. Yeah, CPR. Yeah. Um, it's not like it's on TV, but you come out unscarred from it. And, and the likelihood of surviving CPR is so minuscule, really. If you have a cardiac event in a hospital with providers and drugs, you're still less than 10%. What? Even, yeah, even. And at that, we're talking about fractured ribs, sternum, other potential complications. And spending your last days or hours on machines with family mate unable to be around you. Yeah. 
So um, really trying to get your medical provider, if you're faced with those decisions or you're just contemplating, like you're trying to prepare ahead of time, getting your medical provider to actually give you real information, how to research that, and then how to document it. It, and it may not be so much when you're do, when you're writing your wishes. It may not be I want dialysis or I don't want dialysis. I want chemo. I don't. I want a tooth fitting or I don't. But it's I don't want want to live with chronic pain, or I want to be able to still be able to participate in my day to day family activities and have energy or. You may talk, may need to talk more about what you, how you want to live, not what you're willing to uh, right. live. Right, what's important to you. Again, getting back to understanding your own self and what your quality looks like. And recognizing that that changes over time. For a 60-year-old, it looks different than for an 80-year-old. An 80-year-old. Or what's available today may be very different than what's available in 10 years when your healthcare power of attorney is having to make a decision for how you're going to live. So the complications or side effects, uh, limitations of some of these treatments may be greatly different in the future because of improved technology, right? Right. So don't get real hung up on, on that, what it is today, but think about I want to be able to talk. I want to be able to see. I want to be able to do what it, whatever it is for for you. Right, right. Okay. That makes life special. Okay, so what's the difference between a power of attorney and a healthcare power of attorney? A healthcare power of attorney addresses those issues, those decisions specifically related to medical care and healthcare decisions. So it appoints a surrogate, appoints someone to speak on your behalf. Um, it recognizes that they can make decisions for you when you're unable to. Um, it looks at access to medical records, the HIPAA rules. It, it also looks at disposition of the body. Um, many healthcare powers of attorney now also include the mental health power of attorney, where if I'm having cognitive or psychological issues, and I'm not making good decisions, the power of attorney is able to override those decisions related to mental health treatment. Okay, so a general power of attorney has to do with general business of a person. A healthcare power of attorney is real specific to medical decisions. Um, could be two separate documents, could be the one, could be two separate agents, could be the same person. And then this is something that needs to be in place before you need it, right? Absolutely. You have to be able to give that power to someone. So you need to plan ahead and get those documents in order so that you don't end up in a situation where no one has that authority and someone you may not want is making that decision or the physician is appointing someone to make that decision. And especially in situations where there's blended families or extended families, as you said earlier, your spouse may not be the best person to make that decision. And so if you want someone different, you need to make sure those documents are in place and that they have access to those documents when you need it. So this is the legal authority you're giving someone to make decisions for you, not just the person you've talked to about your wishes. I mean, hopefully you will have talked to this person about Absolutely. your wishes. Absolutely. But you have to give them the legal authority. 
and it's shared authority, right? That's what's different about powers of attorney versus conservatorships. It's shared authority. Right, right. And you're not giving up anything just because you've given somebody else some authority because you're still sharing that authority. I think that's one of the barriers for folks doing these documents. They think they've given away power that they no longer have, and so that's, that's not really the case. All right, so what's the role of a living will then? A living will um, evolved in the late 80s regarding people who did not make decisions and family members fighting over what decisions needed to be made. So there's a lot of very famous cases, the Scheibel case, mm -hmm. um, where the question was, do we continue tube feedings? Do we stop tube feedings and allow a natural death? Um, and so a living will outlines under the law some specific conditions that you would like or not like. Uh, the living will typically states that if you are in a terminal condition or in a persistent vegetative state. So it's very limiting as far as when the living will would be in effect. We often advise that you go back to discussing your wishes with your family or your agent and letting that piece of paper be a guide to the family, not necessarily to the physician or the medical staff. A living will does not stop treatment. It, um, it, it does not stop other treatment, treatment besides what's indicated in the living will so that comfort measures can continue. Antibiotics, it's often reflected um, the same as a post form. You may have heard mm -hmm. of that right. physician order for sustained treatment. Um, where it does get more specific of, do I want full-on crest? Do I want comfort care? Um, do I want somewhere in between? Do I want to be in the ICU? Do I want IVs? Do I want antibiotics? Do I want tube feedings, IV feedings, or no feedings? And so you or your agent can complete those forms. It is signed by a physician, so it does become a doctor's order, and it carries across um, Location. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, uh, so some of these documents, like the powers of attorney or do you, do you know my wishes book, some of those things are just guides. But if you really, you, if you're living in a assisted living facility, if you're living in a, a nursing facility, that has to be translated into a set of orders for the staff to correct to, to follow. So, what about the the DNR, the do not resuscitate order? Any uh, I mean, other than the obvious, they wouldn't resuscitate you. What's the, what's the negatives to having that order? Uh, the negatives to having that order is sometimes it's not just your heart stopping that you need resuscitation. Um, we talked a little earlier about if you do have resuscitation, how likely is that to actually help? Um, I always worry with a do not resuscitate order when you're not in a hospital, who's making that decision? Mm -hmm. You know, is it the tech that walks in and finds you unresponsive, or is it the EMT that comes to take you to the hospital? Um, where does that line, where is that line drawn? Um, I, I recently read something, and I can't tell you where I read it because I don't remember, but um, that residents of a nursing home with a DNR are not checked on as frequently as residents without a DNR. How and, interesting. Um, do you think there's really any, like, 
I mean, we've both been in healthcare facilities for a lot, long time of our professional lives. Any truth to that? I, I mean, I never thought of it that way. I, it would probably be an unconscious thing that, yeah, yeah, at worst, right? Right, right. Most I, people probably, I mean, because a do not resuscitate does not mean do not treat. Exactly. It means if I'm unresponsive, don't resuscitate me. So you should still be getting the regular ongoing care. Even if you're in a hospice situation, you should continue to get the ongoing care uh, to the degree that you choose. Well, that's a good topic. That's a good point to bring up hospice care as part of end of life care. Um, a lot of times we wait until the very end before we see hospice requested and ordered. Um, Hospice has struggled with that for years and years. Um, the one thing about hospice now is it's not just for cancer patients, for oncology patients. It applies to many different diagnoses where essentially someone is not expected to live for six months or more. Um, and sometimes families, sometimes doctors don't want to make that referral. They don't want to give up that hope that I'm going to survive and continue to go on. Sometimes it is misinterpreted as if I go on hospice, it means I don't get any care or treatment. And what we know being in the healthcare field and, and as a care coordinator is that sometimes hospice changes the focus. We know we're not going to get better from this disease. We know this is the best it's going to get. And hospice care can provide an overlay of more care of other assistance. Supportive care. Supportive care, uh, more nurse checks, an extra bath a week, different things like that that can actually add to your quality of life. All right. Um, any resources you want to mention before we wrap up? Um, the Do You Know Our Wishes book is um, available. Um, it's on our website, right? Right. You yeah. can reach that on our website. There's a checkbox where we can send that information to you. Uh, the website is www.tn-elderlaw.com. Um, there's a lot of resources. Um, there's some new um, groups popping up, um, death cafes, where you yeah. have the opportunity to talk with others about end-of-life concerns. Uh, a lot of counselors, hospice can provide information to, mm -hmm. um, on an individual basis or to your groups. We provide education about advanced directives and end of life to the community as needed. So, all right. Well, thanks, Deborah. I've, I've enjoyed this today. Thanks for today's episode, and uh, we'd like to invite you to join us again for our. Uh, next podcast and check out our website and for other resources and don't tuck the sheets in and don't tuck my sheet in thank you bye thank you for listening to the aging starts now podcast for more information about today's show visit tn-elderlaw.com click on the free resources tab and then click on aging starts now You'll find the show notes there. And while you're at it, why not check out all the free resources available at tn-elderlaw.com. Document downloads, the Tagus McGinnis blog, educational videos, informative articles, helpful links, a TV show, and more. It's all there, free for the taking. If you enjoy listening to the Aging Starts Now podcast, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave us a review. It's easy to do on whatever app you use to listen. 
we would love your feedback on the show. Aging starts now. We'll be back next week with more candid discussions about challenges created by aging, disability, and unexpected illness.